0: Hi again, and welcome to LJN Radio. I'm Tim Muma, and you're listening to Moving Up the Ladder. Now, in this episode, we're looking to talk about negotiations. I know it can be uncomfortable for some, and for other people, it's not really sure what to do, and that's why we're bringing an expert on to talk about it. His name is Jeffrey Lowenstein. He's the Associate Professor of Management at the College of Business at the University of Illinois. He's also a recognized expert in the area of negotiation. Jeffrey, thanks a lot for coming on the show today.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Now, the topic of negotiation is always something that we get asked about, whether it's in terms of sales or salary, and people are always a little unsure how to handle that scenario. So we wanted to enlist you, the expert here in this area. I guess the first question to ask is when you're in any kind of negotiation, is it healthy to see it as a, I need to get the best deal, kind of like a win-lose situation? Should you look at it differently? I mean, how do you generally look at a negotiation?
1: I find people often are hesitant about it for very similar reasons. I tend to advise people to think about having three different goals. Okay. So one goal is to claim value, right? That's why we're there in part, right? We're going to put some value in our own pockets. So that's a goal that most people come to think about, but it's not the only goal. We also think about cultivating value, which is building relationships and Hmm. reputations. And the key issue there is to realize that those two first goals are not opposites. You can both <laughs> develop a relationship and claim value. You don't have to be either just tough or soft. You can actually build a relationship and claim value simultaneously. But the third goal is the hard one, because experience does not really teach you how to do it very well. And that's the one you, you mentioned, win-win, how to create value. That often seems mystical to people or or fantasy land or uh, all about, you know, something I don't really get. So that's the one that that takes the most time and and, uh, experience to develop.
0: One thing that I saw that I guess I honestly never really thought of necessarily, maybe we do it subconsciously, but there's this mention of assessing the power that you bring to the discussion. What gives someone power specifically? Or do you see that as a negative based on your reaction there? I don't know if you like that.
1: Power is, is, uh, is necessary, and it's going to be part of just about any negotiation experience. So my general take is we want to think about our power, and we have a few different sources of power. So one of them is our alternatives. So uh, can I walk away? How good is my walkaway option? And the better my walkaway option, then the, the less I have to concede here, the more you need to work uh, with me to give me something better. Otherwise, I'll simply take that outside option. You know, we often fail to do this. So think about, you know, whether it's a job offer or a car or a house or something like that, the more you fall in love, the more this has got to be the one, right? right? (laughs) In other words, you don't have that great outside option. Well, then the more you're just going to make concessions. So a good outside option is an important part of power. The resources you bring to the table are also a source of power. Your understanding of the other side is uh, also uh, a point of influence. So we have lots of sources of power. Um, this is just a, a quick starter on the on the mo- some of the most common ones. And the point is, how do you use that power? Are you using it to try to get more for yourself and force the other party to take less? Are you using that power to change the conversation and and develop a better outcome that enables the other party to be satisfied with the deal as well? Sure. So it's not about not using power; it's about how you use it.
0: Okay. One thing I saw, and I know you kind of alluded to this as far as having alternatives, but this is a little different perspective. That's the idea of having a plan B. So if you're in a current negotiation and and having that plan B in case, I guess, you're just not getting what you thought you could in that first uh, go around, do you suggest that being something you have in your quote-unquote bag of tricks or can that possibly hurt you in that initial negotiation?
1: Absolutely. Definitely recommend a plan B. The reason is that you want to have as good an an alternative to the current discussion as possible. The issues that come up there, I think, are often around loyalty Hmm. and then resource commitment. So what do I have to do to generate a plausible plan B? Uh, And that can take a fair amount of time and resources. So that's a a negative sometimes. And then will you see me as less loyal if I go out and and hunt up another option? So think about that in the job negotiation context. If I'm going to negotiate a raise or a promotion or something and I go, out and get another job offer, are you going to think, well, is he really committed to the firm? That's the kind of concern that you might have about generating a plan B. But other than that, it is very useful because that way you have a sense of how much to give. We know that people who move from job to job in different firms tend to come out ahead salary-wise, for example, than people who stay with the same firm uh, over a longer period of time because each negotiation means they've developed that alternative. And as a result, uh, they're able to pick the better option each time.
0: I wanted to pick your brain on some phrases that people might use or even some terms that come up. And the one that I saw, and this often, of course, comes with a salary or might be with the cost of something, and that's giving a range. So saying, you know, between this amount and that amount, do you see that as being effective or do you see it as how some do? They're just going to hear the minimum and kind of work from there.
1: Exactly. Okay. <laughs> uh, I don't advise ranges. People just pick the end they want and uh, ignore the, the rest of it. So instead, what I encourage people to do is spend more time thinking about the justification for the number that they really want to hit. Usually, okay. we use, we, I find people use ranges because they're afraid to say the number they really want, and so they say a range, so it doesn't sound uh, as extreme. So generate the justification for your number. And if you can't generate it, maybe you shouldn't be asking for it. But if you can, then ask for it. And if people aren't able to do it, at least you've given them a reason why that that's a plausible number that shouldn't scare them, but that should seem credible.
0: And that's something to me, it sounds like you definitely need to be prepared if you're going to do something like that, because you don't want to still lowball someone or you don't want to go too high. Because it sounds like if you're giving a range, you're kind of playing it safe.
1: You're trying to play it safe. And what you're doing, I think, is limiting your ability to obtain value. You're giving them the flexibility to say, I was in your range and give you, therefore, a deal that's really not very good for you. So absolutely, this is a a part of the homework of negotiating is figuring out what is plausible for uh, you to set as your target and then figuring out a reason why the other side can see it as you see it as a reasonable outcome for your discussion.
0: I like that tip. I do think a lot of people really do utilize that range in any negotiation. So I like that. I think that's something that people can take away from the conversation. Another phrase that people say or we've seen used is the idea of, uh, I think we're close when you're getting to ideally a conclusion. What do you think about using a phrase like that?
1: I think that's helpful because it, in, it generates a feeling of um, momentum and a feeling of we can do this. But let me give you the opposite side of this as well, because sometimes you have to say, boy, I'm not sure with what we are currently talking about, we're going to get there. Maybe we can sit back and explore whether there's something we're missing, or there's another way to look at it. Sometimes we take these momentary impasses or, boy, I'm not sure we're going to get there, as an indication to get creative. And we often leave a lot of value on the table because we just narrow our focus too much. And so if you say, hey, I think we're almost there, that's a positive message. We're going to get there, but it can also stop you from exploring for even more ways to improve the quality of your agreement. And so moving to settle quickly because you don't like negotiating and (laughs) I'm stressed and I'm nervous and I just want to get out of here uh, means you won't um, take the full opportunity to um, find ways to, to make the deal work for you and work for them.
0: Another thing I've seen a lot, and people have mentioned it, is there's this concern that whether it is a sales situation or maybe from the employer side, you are looking to hire somebody and they're worried they're bidding against themselves in some way. And if you're a sports fan, you hear this all the time when you're talking about salaries for players. How can you make sure you're not bidding against yourself and and ensure that, I guess, you're doing things properly?
1: The issue there, I think, comes down to what is your understanding of their alternative? So if I have an outside option and try to improve it, well, then you've got to beat it for me to, to stick around unless there's a larger reason for me to be here. And the same goes. Now I need to understand your outside option. And if you have an outside option that's really fantastic, well, then I'm probably going to have to beat it. If you don't, then the question is much more qualitative. What do I need to do to encourage you that the option I've given you is a really good one? We really do value you. The relationship matters to us. And that's not just about the dollars and cents. It's about everything else that comes along with keeping you here and having you part of the team and honoring and recognizing you and your contributions. And that can be done in many, many different ways, not just financially.
0: When you're in these negotiations, obviously, in most cases, you're going to be in person or at least viewing them on a video screen or something to that effect. Do you see a lot of value in recognizing body language when you're going throughout a negotiation? And if so, what kind of tips could you offer up to the listeners?
1: I know it's one that brings a lot of curiosity. There's a lot of feeling that if I'm in the room with you, that I can read you and, and feel uh, good or uh, hesitant about working with you. And I think sometimes our intuitions are very helpful along those lines. The things to watch out for, though, are as you cross culture and as you cross generations, then your understanding of body language and reading the voice and the tone and the approach and style of another person, you can be wildly off and jump to some pretty horrifying conclusions. So building rapport is very, very useful and and getting an understanding of the style of the other person that you're working with specifically is critical. So I would hesitate to jump to conclusions about body language very early in a conversation with someone you don't really know, especially because if, if they're likely to be from a different background as you.
0: I love that. I think that I really appreciate that advice because too many times we hear from people, you know, well, if they do this, this is what it means. If they do this, this is what it means. And clearly you're saying, eh, it's not quite that simple.
1: <laughs> exactly. Uh, and I'll give you a very simple example um, from a colleague of mine, Jeffrey Sanchez Burks,
0: where he brought
1: people in for job interviews, and he had the interviewer either echo their body posture of the interviewee or just stand still. What he found is that many uh, American white males, if, you, if the interviewer stood still, it didn't bother them at all. And if the interviewer echoed their body posture, it didn't matter at all. But his Hispanic uh, interviewees, his folks from Latin America and Central America and Mexico, they were very bothered by an interviewer that just stood still. And so they saw that as really not showing that we're in sync and that we're developing a relationship. So what your body posture means is really a joint issue with the other person. And if you don't know the other you know, person's background,
0: boy, you can, you can jump to
1: some really bad conclusions.
0: I think that's a great example for our listeners to understand and at least have that insight going into any kind of negotiating situation. The last thing I wanted to touch on with you was the idea of who's doing the speaking. Now, again, this might be, as you said, a cultural thing. This could be a generational gap that could be a consideration, but you see a lot of things that whoever's doing the most talking, they tend to think things are going better for them. I hear that actually with interviews. The more you let the guests talk, they think, hey, that was a really good interview. What do you think in terms of that negotiating side? Is there power in silence? Is there power in speaking? How do you view it?
1: It's a complicated one. And I think your question is is really on target. So in some cultural communities, We talk a lot and silence is very uncomfortable. So uh, Brazil, for example, a lot of back and forth talking, a lot of uh, talking together. In uh, Japan, for example, uh, much more tolerance for silence. So Americans tend to be a little less comfortable with silence and want to fill it. So um, there are opportunities for uh, allowing for some silence and encouraging the other party to fill that silence. And that can be beneficial to you. If I do talk a lot and feel like I'm controlling the conversation, that can make me happy. And if I'm happy with the deal, then I may not notice or be so worried that I've given you some wonderful concessions. So the feeling of power and the feeling of control can actually be, in effect, a concession you make to the other side. Sure, I'll get the better deal, but you'll feel good because you've controlled the conversation. So you need to be careful for what you're really winning in these uh, discussions that you're having one more point, though, that's interesting, in my own research, we've been finding that going in to ask questions is an incredibly useful approach for negotiation. Many people approach a negotiation with the mindset of, I'm going to control the conversation, I'm going to tell them what I think, as opposed to, I'm going to go in and ask questions and try to listen to them. I'm amazed at how much people are willing to tell you in a negotiation if you just ask.
0: Jeff, I think some terrific insight for our listeners. I feel better about if I have to ever go into a negotiating situation. So hopefully all those that have been paying attention will feel the same. Thanks again for joining us and giving us your insight today. It's just a pleasure talking with you, and I wish wish you the, all the best. Unfortunately, that will wrap things up for us on moving up the ladder in our conversation about really the do's and don'ts of negotiation, giving you all some advice and insight into how to handle those types of scenarios. We were speaking with Jeffrey Lowenstein, Associate Professor of Management in the College of Business at the University of Illinois. If you'd like to give us some feedback on this show or any of our episodes, go ahead and shoot us an email, ljnradio at localjobnetwork.com, or you can send us a message on Twitter at the LJN, and you can check out all of our episodes on iTunes. Just search LJN Radio in the iTunes store. Thanks once again for listening. I'm your host, Tim Muma. We'll talk to you later.